Thanks for tuning in to The Drop-Off. I'm Nicole Real, and I'm excited to share today's episode with you. On October 4th, Epic brought together Colorado business leaders to celebrate our event, Today's Vision, Tomorrow's Success, at our 14th annual Business Leaders Dinner in Glendale, Colorado. This year's event was another great success. We had over 220 business leaders, Epic members, and partners in attendance. And this month's podcast features the fireside chat portion of the annual Business Leaders Dinner. Our two wonderful guests, Natrice Bryant and Elliot Haspel, brought unique perspectives on early care and education solutions at the local, state, and national level. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome back. Hopefully everyone had a great dinner. And thank you, Alethea, for your wonderful comments and highlighting some of the work that we're doing. Um, I am so excited for this fireside chat. Um, I did change my outfit in case any of you are wondering. <laughs> uh, the, other, the dress felt a little too formal and short for a fireside chat. So, um, But, you know, we get the chance to work with some amazing partners uh, in our field. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to highlight two of the amazing people who we get to work with, learn from. Um, and really talk about early childhood policy with. So excited to have them both. And I'm gonna read bios for each one of them so you have a little bit more background. Um, Natree serves now as the Director of State Property as of two days ago. She was promoted, so congratulations. <laughs> um, in the Department of Personnel Administration for the State of Colorado. And uh, those of you who were at last year's dinner may recall that we talked about EPIC supporting legislation that created the new public-private partnership office in our state. And so Natrice was the, the first director to take on that role with the public-private partnership office and um, has just been doing amazing work. She's an innovative, out-of-the-box thinker, um, honestly one of my favorite people to have coffee with, so really excited to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> and welcome, Natrice. Thank you. <laughs> And then Elliot Haspel is here. He's a nationally recognized child and family policy expert and commentator with a specialty in early childhood and education issues. Um, I'm a regular reader of his articles and his reoccurring column, which is called Elliot's Provocations. And he's also the author of a book called Crawling Behind, America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. Um, I'm a big fan of Elliot's ability to articulate what so many of us grapple with when it comes to these issues around child care, um, but also his willingness to really dialogue and, and have some good discussion on this topic because it's complicated and there's a lot to it. Um, Elliot is also a new Colorado resident, so welcome. Thank um, you. Happy to have you here and, and welcome. So thank you both for joining me today. Okay. All right, so we're going to, I think the great thing about this conversation is we're going to get a little bit of the 30,000 foot level. Elliot has a lot of experience um, talking about things at the national level, federal level, but we're also going to hear about uh, Colorado projects and Colorado progress and things happening in local communities. So we're going we're gonna to take you both directions tonight as we talk to them. Um, but Natrice, I'm going to start with you. Could you just tell me a little bit, tell us, 240 of us, <laughs> a little bit more about your personal and professional background and, and your journey to the Department of, of Personnel Administration here in Colorado. Yeah, sure, thank you. So I am a government girl. I've been working in government for the last 17 years. 
Um, and so I'm very familiar with the bureaucracy in which we put in place and the unintentional consequences of those things. Um, started off at the city attorney's office in Denver where I was a victim advocate for um, survivors of domestic violence and really saw how those barriers that were put in place that really did not protect our children and protect our community could actually expand upon and we could put in legislation and law that would allow for us to have protections for individuals who are most vulnerable. I did that for about six years, fast forward, went into state government 11 years ago and really started to focus on how we create laws and space for people who are continuously disenfranchised. Um, the first piece of legislation that we worked on was Senate Bill 13251. It allowed for undocumented immigrants to obtain their driver's licenses in Colorado. And that really did start to open the door and help me see you know, where we have gaps in state government and then how we can fix those. I've been passionate and worked at the Department of Regulatory Agencies, where we worked on financial literacy and financial education for community members, and then also created a lot of different policies and, and work to open up doors for credit unions and, and um, banks across the state to allow for financial education and literacy to occur. Then, fast forward, um, I was the Deputy Executive Director for the Department of Local Affairs, where we oversaw affordable housing. Um, I was the state chair for the 2020 Census, so we got that extra seat, you guys. That's really exciting. Um, at the Washington level, so we have an additional congressional seat. And really started to see some of the challenges that we had and what we faced and how we look at housing development and how policies need to be put in place to allow for flexibility as we're building more spaces. It's one thing to develop housing. It's another thing to develop housing and pay attention to how many children we are bringing into those neighborhoods and giving access to education for those children while they are there. Um, we are overloading our school systems, and so one of the things that I started to look at is how can we expand our efforts as a state government to really allow for space for us to help educate and bring up our most precious jewels, which are our children. Um, last thing, <laughs> uh, as the public-private partnership director for the state, I had the pleasure of working with Nicole and with Epic to really start to look at how do we utilize state land. We have a lot of it, we have a lot of available parcels, and land is part of the issue when you're looking at development. We have the space, and so we should create that space to allow for development of early child care centers, and we should fund it accordingly and allow for those funding mechanisms to be able to be supportive of the communities that we serve. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow. Okay. And yeah, right? <laughs> I think you can start to see why she's one of my favorite people to have coffee with because she knows a little bit about literally everything, like everything. So, um, Elliot, super excited to have you here. Can you tell us more about your career journey? How did you get to become an author and this national thought leader that is regularly writing articles and commentating on childcare policy? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I've, my career has been animated by two values. One, that all kids deserve a fair shot to thrive, and two, that when families flourish, we all flourish. Uh, and I started my career in K-12 education, so I was a fourth grade teacher, and I spent the first you know, time after that really kind of around school improvement, school reform. Uh, and I started to get frustrated. We all know how important schools are, and I was noticing despite all the effort and person power and time and energy and money going into it, we weren't really seeing anywhere in the country that was systematically 
uh, changing the odds for kids. We certainly see places that were doing better, places that were helping kids beat the odds, but the odds overall were staying the, the same. And so I kind of pulled back and said, well, what other influences are here? And when you pull back, you ask what influences go into a child's life. Very, very quickly, you get into early childhood development, you get into family economic stability, and you get into family, uh, overall family flourishing. Uh, at around the same time, I was having my own daughter, and I was noticing that uh, childcare, I don't know if you know this, is really expensive and really hard to find. Uh, and um, it was for me and my, my friend group, and we were incredibly privileged. We were in our 30s, almost all of us were married, dual earner families, most of us had graduate degrees. It's incredibly difficult to find and afford childcare, and so it occurred to me, like, well, this is this harder for us than what it means for everyone without the advantages that we have. Uh, must be even more. So I transitioned into early childhood, and I, when I started working in early care and education, uh, it, well, I loved the fact that there was much more of a holistic view of the family and of the child, but it also knows there's no money in that system. So if you count up all the money at every level that the United States spends on public education every single year, it comes to about $800 billion is pretty close to rounding up to a trillion dollars, $800 billion. If you count up all the money that we spend on early care and education in this country, and most of this is actually concentrated on four-year-olds, but all the, the money between birth and age five, it's about $30 billion. $30 billion, $800 billion is a massive gap. And so that's when I started to uh, say, you know, this is something I got to start speaking out about. This is something I need to be working in. And that's really what led me to, to, read my, uh, to write my book, which struck a nerve, and things kind of took off from there. Awesome. And so while well, you mentioned the book, I'm curious, you know, what, um, can you tell us more about the book and really what was the primary message um, that you set out to share in this book in terms of, you know, childcare and also, you know, how it impacts America as a whole? Yeah, the book is really centered around this question of, of how, why do we treat childcare and the first five years of life so radically differently than the next 12? So, right, in this country, there are certain things that we say these are uh, going to be the society is going to pay into and make sure that it's accessible and available for everyone, right? And you can think about fire departments, roads, public schools, parks, libraries, right? Bill Gates can walk into his public library and check out a book for free. It's okay. And then there's a basket of things that we say are private goods, right? The private individual goods, gym memberships, restaurants, clothing stores. Right? And there's this question of why do we put childcare in the second bucket? given everything we've heard tonight and everything most of us know about the immense benefits that it has, not just for the children and families that it serves, but for society writ large. And so the, really the, the book is exploring what's the history of that, why we have this schism, um, and how do we think about elevating childcare to a place that it is seen as essential, not just for its economic benefits, though those are incredible and massive, but as a fundamental, uh, really American value of saying families should have self-determination, right? You should be able to choose what community you live in, that where you want to invest your time, where you want to put your kids in their activities, what faith community you want to be a part of, and that should not be determined by whether or not there is accessible, available childcare. Right? You should be able to choose to start a business, to take a promotion, to try out a new career. Uh, not because, you know, out of desire, but that should not be blocked because uh, there's not affordable, accessible childcare. And, you know, this was mentioned earlier tonight, but I think the most intimate and maybe wrenching thing is you should be able to choose what size family you have out of a question of desire, not out of a question of can I find and afford childcare. So, yeah, that's...
Thank you. So that's kind of the driving force of the book. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's, you know, it, it is a big question, right? Like, why do we have early care and education in such a different bucket than our K-12 system and, and you know, the later years in life? So, Natrice, we've, we've mentioned this public-private partnership office, but I want to make sure we're all starting from the same understanding here. Um, what is a public-private partnership, and um, how does this office operate, and is this unique, you know, that Colorado's doing this? Are there other states doing this as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Nicole. So, we started legislation in partnership with you all as the state government to really look at how can we utilize our state underutilized and unutilized assets. And one of the things that we looked at during COVID is where did we have a huge gap across the state? It was housing, early child care, behavioral and mental health, and broadband connectivity. We made a lot of assumptions about what it is that we should and should not do. We had children that were learning from home and had no connectivity to internet, but still wanted them to participate equally in the educational process. And so as we started to look at this, we were like, how do we bring in private sector and public dollars together to really focus on our most valuable assets, which are our children? And so what we did is um, once the legislation passed, it took some time, but we stood up the office in the Department of Personnel and Administration, and we inventoried all of our state assets that could be developed. And so what you'll find on our website is we have a map that shows exactly where our underutilized parcels of land that are of an acre or more that we as the state can actually step up and start doing some development on that site. Granted, we are government, so we do a lot of things well, but we are not childcare providers. And so that process includes us putting out solicitations to try to bring in the experts to help us understand how many little sinks and big sinks, small toilets, big toilets, how much do we actually need in these sites. Um, the public-private partnership component is bringing those private sector dollars to the table because as you all probably are aware, we go to the Joint Budget Committee every year and ask for additional funding. Sometimes they tell us yes, sometimes they tell us no. And so if we're continuing to focus only on public dollars, we will not be able to solve the issues that we have. And so bringing our private sector partners, we have great partners at the foundation level, we have great large businesses that are interested in investing in their employees, but also investing in the future of Colorado that are willing to bring dollars to the table. So why wouldn't we blend those funds? Um, the state is very unique in the fact that we are a local control state, and so each county kind of looks at things of how they do things based on their community need. And that's, a, that's another space that that public-public, so to speak, private partnership can come together where we're looking at local government, local control, and how we implement some things that are really statutorily driven, but also driven by the local government. Um, that piece has kind of highlighted why we need to do things differently. And so the state has started to look at, not only are we building early child care centers, but we're looking at coupling that with potential housing development so that wouldn't it be great if you have your early child care center on the first floor of your building that you can drop off your child, go to work, participate in the economy, come home and know that your child is in a safe space. So that's what our office really focuses on. Awesome. Um, and then as you've dug into some of these childcare projects and, and really, you know, kind of the business model behind that, what are some of those really key challenges that you've observed and what has surprised you the most about this work with childcare? That's a great question. So um, looking into this, real estate has been a problem, like finding the right amount of space to be able to build a childcare center. The second issue is funding. 
Um, we have a lot of different opportunities to build really great childcare centers and provide those services to our community, but we are not funded the same as K through 12 education. And so because of that, to Elliot's point, there's definitely a need for us to start looking at things differently, which is where that private sector component comes in. Um, one of the things that's been really surprising to me in a good way is the willingness for developers to actually start working with us and looking at how could I build housing in partnership with early childcare, or how could I build a behavioral health center and next door I have an early childcare center. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of the projects that we started to look at, but the state is also an employer. And so we don't just do government things, we also have staff that work with us and work for us. And so how do we incorporate their needs? We have in, um, individuals that are part of a job that is not an eight to five job. And so how do they have access to early childcare? We have nurses. Tragedy doesn't typically happen eight to five. It happens at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And so how do we meet our staff where they are? And so one of the other challenges that we're looking at is accessibility to services and to care at hours that are not your six to six operational time. Yeah, yeah, those like those late hours, evenings, weekends, those are hard for families to find for sure. Um, and you mentioned funding, so I'm going to toss this back over to Elliot. Um, I think anyone who's maybe seen the news lately, read the news lately, you've been hearing about this childcare cliff across the country. Um, and so for the benefit of everyone who's here tonight, Elliot, what is the childcare cliff? You know, what does this mean for families and childcare businesses? Yeah, so the childcare cliff refers to the fact that the pandemic hit childcare, the sector, in two ways. The first part of sort of the pandemic, you saw massive enrollment drops. And again, we treat childcare like a gym or a restaurant, so it's pay to play. You only get the money that's coming in from your enroll, enrolled students. So that was the first problem. And then when demand started to come back, something interesting happened in the overall labor force. And I would personally argue this was a good thing overall, is we started to see base compensation going up, right? We saw Amazon, Target, McDonald's, all the United Airlines, you know, offering 17, 18, 19, $20 an hour and some benefits. Childcare programs, though, are, are constrained by these iron laws of economics, where basically they're barely able to keep their doors open as it is, they, and the only place that they can cut, unless they want to ask parents to pay yet more, which many of them can't, the parents just cannot bear that, uh, is to cut wages. So the median uh, you know, wage for a childcare employee is somewhere around $13, $14 an hour, about half of them don't get health insurance from uh, their employer, and many of them lack PTO, retirement, all of those benefits. So, uh, massive competitive disadvantage for childcare employers. And so what the federal government is, they passed through various bills, most notably the American Rescue Plan Act, about $50 billion worth of relief funding. 24 billion of that went straight to childcare programs to say you need operational funds to keep your doors open and because we need this sector to not crumble into the sea, basically. That money um, expired or had to be allocated as of two, three days ago. Uh, now, and so the childcare cliff, that's what it refers to. That, that money's no longer there. Now, some states, Colorado among them, um, did put in some state money, to, so it's not gonna, cliff is sometimes a misnomer. It's a good political word, but like, it's not like the industry is falling off and falling to its death tomorrow. 70,000 childcare programs have not closed, but what we're on is on a massive uh, era of, of really pain. Like, there's going to be, we're seeing programs Surveys in some states say as many as 75% of them are going to have to raise their parent fees. Many programs do face existential threats to their ability to stay open, and disproportionately, it's the programs that serve lower-income parents who cannot bear to pay more. 
because all of a sudden they, these programs need to make up that gap. And this goes to the fact that uh, you know, childcare is what the US Treasury Department calls a failed market. It should not be a market good. It does not work as a market good. There's a, a line from a writer, Annie Lowry, and I, I repeat all the time because she's so spot She says, the math does not work. The math will never work. No country in the world makes it work without substantial government investment. So I think this conversation is great. I applaud the work of... Um, yeah, I applaud the work of many of the, the employers here, and we can talk more about that, but like, we're in some ways going to constantly be nibbling around the edges until we get public investment that honors childcare as the essential service that it is. So on that topic, um, what are some of the models or proposed ideas that you've seen kind of happening around the country? Are there any that you, know, you see as large-scale solutions that you think are doing a good job of addressing this in states or elsewhere? Yeah, so this is where I get to get on my soapbox, and this isn't the most, uh, uh, gonna be the most popular thing I've ever said in a room full of business executives, but uh, a lot of this comes down to tax, re tax revenue. Uh, we need dedicated funding sources, uh, and I think uh, we, it is very difficult to, thank you, it's very difficult to innovate. You have some fans back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a few people with me. It's very difficult to innovate outside the box when you don't even have a box. So, and, like, and I think that's part of the challenge. Just, again, those fundamentals of the economics don't work. And so we have seen in a few states, uh, so New Mexico did this. Vermont is what I'm going to talk about because New Mexico relied on their natural gas and oil sort of reserves, which not every state has. But Vermont did something pretty interesting. They um, passed a law that will put about $120 million every year into their childcare system. Now, Vermont has about three kids under the age of five. Um, it's not quite true, but if they don't have a lot. They're a small state, uh, right? They're about, uh, you know. And so the way they decided to fund this, and again, I know I'm talking to a room of business people, is through a payroll tax. They said, we're gonna levy a 0.44% employer tax, 75% of which is gonna be paid by, for by the employer, 25% of, of which will be paid, by, paid for by the employee, and we're gonna use that to make sure that everyone, we're gonna massively expand the number of people who are eligible for childcare assistance, and we're gonna make sure that the money going per kid to each childcare programs is much higher so that they're able to raise compensation. Um, and what's interesting is you saw during those legislative hearings, small business owner after small business owner coming up and saying, actually, this is good. This is because I'll be able to make that up pretty quickly, but now this isn't something I have to worry about, right? Like, I am, I love what Steamboat's done. I would love for Steamboat not to have to put in several hundred thousand dollars every year. I want the government to put in that money and still operate a center on site because there are equity issues there, right? Like, not everyone gets to work for a Steamboat. There are millions of gig employees out there working who don't have an employer of record. There are, uh, there are the, those working in non-traditional hours. There are always going to be inequities. And so the reason we don't ask employers to cover the first grade, it's the reason we don't ask is to run through employers. So that idea of where do we find uh, a permanent dedicated source of revenue, like that seems to be where the innovation is right now because our federal government doesn't appear to be looking like it's gonna step up anytime soon, so it is gonna be up to states to have that conversation in the meantime. What do you think is key to making sure that those potential programs or solutions are operating efficiently and effectively, right? I think in some of our communities, 
you know, employers are stepping up and, and saying, you know, if not us, then who, right? Nothing's happening quickly and, and government certainly doesn't move quickly most of the time, right? So uh, we could talk about that a little bit too, but you know, like, is, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so I do think one thing, and something I actually really appreciate about y'all's design lab, right, and, and other things is that the regular, there are things that are gonna need to be in place when we have that public funding. One of those things is a really efficient regulatory licensing scheme, right? Like we know that right now it is too difficult to start a childcare business. It is too difficult to, to leap certain hurdles that don't probably need to be there. And so that's, I think, one piece of the puzzle is when we pull back and we look at the system for someone who wants to start a business, operate a business, for the parents and the families using this to access those services, all of that infrastructure, which I think Epic is doing a wonderful job of advancing, uh, needs to be in place. It needs to be in place yesterday, it will need to be in place tomorrow. And so, yeah, there's absolutely somewhere where we can be, uh, I think, looking into innovating and to, to understanding uh, what is the system that we need moving forward, you know, when, even if you hold the funding constant. Thanks. I, I think DJ said it best when he said that we run into the red tape, um, which, you know, we certainly, <laughs> we have certainly done that in some cases to really figure out like what is that, uh, what is that effective system and, and how do we support these businesses. So Natrice, I know that in the public-private partnership office, you've been doing some really exciting work in local communities around Colorado. Um, you know, we're all about solutions here. We want to talk about some of this progress and things that are moving forward. Can you share more about some of these projects that your office has been working on to really support this need across Colorado? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that we've done when it comes to red tape and removal of such. Um, we started to look at different ways in which the state can actually utilize state dollars. So we got $28 million over the last two years, which is just a drop in the bucket, but it is funding that we can continuously appropriate, which means I can spend it throughout the years. I don't have to spend it by June 30th of whatever year, knowing that construction takes a lot longer than 365 days. Um, so we removed that barrier to allow for us to have opportunities to build that. One of the things that we did, and I talked about us being an employer, is that paying attention to our Department of Corrections. Um, you all were very instrumental in helping us. Our employees were raising their hands and saying the reason we're unable to staff some of our most volatile um, facilities is because we do not have the ability to access childcare for our staff. They raised their hand. Over half of the employees at the Department of Corrections um, hours that they could not work, they could not work at past 6 p.m. because they didn't have access to childcare. So with you all, we did a feasibility study to look at opportunities that we have to utilize current state assets that are down, and specifically this one was Fremont County, which is where we have a large percentage of folks that would be receiving CCAP, even our own staff. So looking at those and starting to say, okay, well, what if we used utilized our state asset? we will end up taking on some operational costs and that's something that we need to do as a state government is really start looking at how we invest. So that'll open up potentially over 100 seats for children um, in that center and it will be opened up to community. So that is something that we're starting to look at over the next fiscal year. How do we look at dollars? How do we implement those funds? And our office will help with a portion of those operating costs and capital costs to construct that building for the children to go to. Um, so that's really exciting for us looking at that. 
Um, a couple more, so Steamboat inspired us. <laughs> so we have another project in Steamboat that we're starting to look at. We identified a parcel of land that is owned by the Department of Transportation. It is um, a beautiful parcel that we have absolutely nothing on right now. So it's just been sitting vacant. Um, we started to look at plotting. How can we look at this? Um, a portion of, those, uh, of that land is in a floodplain, so starting to work with the city and figuring out is there an opportunity for us to figure out how we scoot us over? Um, that, that center will look at 11,000 square feet on the first floor for early childcare, and then 36 units of workforce housing on top of that center to be able to provide opportunities for folks to live and also have childcare within their homes. Um, so that's a really exciting project that we're starting to look at and we hope to have that done soon. I'll continue with a couple of more just to share with you, to show you that we're really not just looking in the front range in the metro area. It's really important for us as a state entity to look at statewide access. Um, we've done an analysis and we have 55 parcels that we've looked at that we could potentially do. The other one that we're looking at is a potential partnership um, with the judicial uh, unit over downtown in Denver and how they could do employer-based childcare. They're still kind of doing the feasibility component there and they'll reach back out to us to figure out can we open up a site at the Ralph Carr Center, which is where um, we have a lot of our court access, those hours, again, are not eight to five. They're not something that everything stops at 5 p.m., everybody goes home, and they come and pick up their children. So we're looking at that particular potential partnership as well. And then um, finally, just to kind of look a little bit deeper, we have a couple of different components that we're looking at in our mountain communities. So I talked about Steamboat. We also have one that's in Eagle County that we're looking at potential development. And what, I, what you'll notice is that we are not just building centers. We're building housing for the families that live there to be able to utilize the center. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And I think the important part with that comes with that is that it shows that we're looking at doing mixed-use development intentionally. Um, there are some developments that we've looked at as a state. We build something, it's a beautiful building, and we're like, how come nobody came to use it? We build it and we hope that they will come. We didn't actually talk to the community and figure out what do you need? How do we meet you where you are? Where are your children struggling? What type of community center are you looking for? Do you need a swimming pool or not? Do you need um, a certain amount of space or not? And so the last one that I'll talk a little bit about is uh, one that we're looking at in Lakewood, which you guys will probably be familiar with. It's everybody's favorite DMV site. Um, so it's right behind Casa Bonita. We've actually looked at a conceptual design. I, I joke about that because everybody loves to go to the DMV. Um, but we've looked at that site to keep the DMV still operating at that potential site, but we have three parcels of land that surround that that we just water. We don't do anything with it besides water it, it floods, it creates problems for our parking lot, and there's a lot of retention issues that we have at that site. We've looked at a conceptual design to not only create home ownership opportunities, which we know is a struggle um, in the Lakewood and Jefferson County community, but also creating a community space that could potentially have a child care center within it because we know that the elementary school that's adjacent to that parcel and not far from it cannot take any more children under the age of five at this point. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say we have to start going to community and figuring out what the need and desire is for that community instead of making assumptions about what we should build. So those are some things that we've started to work on. So many cool projects happening. Love it. Um, and I'm like, yes, definitely clap for that because I think 
Having this new public-private partnership where you can have the state step up and say, hey, we've got empty land sitting around our state. We could do something with this. And we can bring private partners to the table to help us create these opportunities for communities. These are things that as we continue to try to make progress on the advocacy level and, and the big picture here, right, we are moving these things forward. And I think that they do happen faster um, oftentimes when you've got these private partners involved. Um, so I think, you know, really great stories to tell and to share with, you know, not just folks in Colorado, but even, you know, other people around the country to say, here's something that the state could do, um, even with their own land and property. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to wrap up our fireside chat. Uh, we're getting close to the end, but um, Elliot, I'm question for you, like you... And have you been to Casa Bonita yet, by the way? My, my Colorado born and raised wife has been talking it up nonstop. So okay. we're on the list. If any of you have an in, I will be forever grateful. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, you've got to, you know, those of us who have been here for a while, you know, we've definitely heard about it and some of us have been. So, um, but, you know, knowing this is your first time coming to an Epic dinner, you're just familiarizing yourself with Colorado and really what Epic does with business leaders. Um, what's, what's exciting to you about what business leaders are doing through Epic? Yeah, I mean, first of all, this room is exciting. Like, thank you all for being here, like, on Wednesday night. Like, give yourself a round of applause. Yeah. Like, this is to come and sit and talk about early care and education, um, you know, when it's not many of your core business or day-to-day. -day, like, that's, that is exciting. This is a powerful room. You know, I think that's something that Mayor Johnston was talking about. Like, and so that's exciting. I think the, what I really appreciate about Epic, and I have talked you all up to national, you know, settings, as you thank know. You. Yes. Is that... You're doing both, right? You're helping with the immediate, like, let's get, let's figure out what we can do with the needs right in front of our face. And you're helping to rally business leaders to make the broader case. Because we do, we have to start, everyone in society and people who are more than just childcare advocates need to start saying, it got, it got to get this out of this bucket of being a private, individualized responsibility and, and market good. And we have to make this part of the essential social infrastructure of this country. We have to start naming what that's going to cost and say, you know what, it's okay. Some things in this country, some things in our society cost tax dollars and it's good. We want that, that helps all of us. We want parks, we want roads, you want schools, you want libraries, you want childcare. If you wanna have vibrant, flourishing communities, cities, states, and a vibrant and flourishing country, and to have business leaders saying that, to bring them along, to understand this, to put them in a position to say that to lawmakers, uh, is incredibly powerful, because it is very easy, and I'll be very honest with you, it's very easy for lawmakers to tune out the childcare sector. It is a pretty weak sector politically. There's not much lobbying power. There is you not have a, sort of a sort of electoral threat you're able to bring. No one is donating a huge amounts of money to people's PACs or to deal with childcare for the most part. Business leaders are powerful. Lawmakers listen to business leaders. So if business leaders are saying with one voice, we've got this wrong, there's a way to get this right, and we're okay with the hard conversation about how we're gonna fund it. I mean, that is how change and transformation can happen, and that, I think, is what Epic is at the forefront at. So I, I applaud you, I applaud everyone here. So thank you for the work that you all are doing. Thank you. Natrice, I have a feeling that you're just getting started with your work. <laughs> Um, and you've, you've already been doing amazing work with the state of Colorado, but what are you excited about for the future and what do you hope you can see in the future too with progress around childcare and, and the role that the state plays in that? 
So with my new job and my current old job that I'm still doing at the same time, because we need to backfill it. She has two jobs um, right now. I have now. two jobs. <laughs> got two jobs. I think the one thing I'm excited about is really starting to utilize our state assets in a different way. It's, it's a powerful statement to say that the state government cares about children and cares about children in a way in which we are showing and putting money behind the fact that we care about children. Um, the one thing that I look really um, forward to in my new position is that we, I have like full scope now of every state asset that we have. COVID brought an interesting concept to us where we don't actually have to be at work physically to do our job. So we have a lot of vacant space that we could potentially utilize and repurpose, retrofit these spaces to create early childcare opportunities for places that we know have existed as childcare deserts. Um, the other thing that I think is really exciting is to Elliot's point, the math is not mathing, right? And so we look at how do we put together a financial model that really does say, here's a continuous source of funding, to your point, that someone can dip into and say, we see that there's a gap here. We have a parcel of land that we can use. We need money to build something on that parcel, and why not benefit children and community and families by utilizing those funds? It would be great to have that, re that funding pool available to us. And that's something I really hope that we can create. There's taxpayer dollars. I don't know very many taxpayers that would argue with the fact that we would like to have funding sources for our children because it creates our future. And so if we're able to put our money where our mouth is and also start looking at how we develop early child care centers in partnership with housing, we keep hearing about housing, housing, housing. Where are we educating our children that live in those homes? And so that's something that I really look forward to and continuing to partner with you all on as we move forward. Thank you. Well, we're really looking forward to continuing that work with both of you as well. And, um, the, you know, we might have a little report coming out in the fall that might encourage other governmental partners to follow suit with what the state has done with their property. Um, I hope that you all enjoyed this fireside chat tonight and that you are walking away, you know, more informed and hopefully inspired as well. You know, business leaders, they do have such an incredible role to play here and they have such powerful voices. And, you know, I get asked all the time, like, you know, what should we do? Right. And, and we have a whole spectrum of things that we can help business leaders understand how to help with and how to get involved. And you can do big things, you can do small things, but you should be doing something, full stop, right? We want everyone to get involved and maybe you get involved with small things first and then you go big, right? So we wanna help you get excited about that um, and that's really what we, what we get excited about at Epic is, is really helping put all that into action and do that good work. So thank you again to both of you for joining me tonight. I really appreciate your time, your expertise and your partnership. And we're gonna wrap up this fireside chat and turn it over to Alethea Gomez to wrap us up tonight.